0: Well, brothers and sisters, friends, we are in the second of a very brief three-part series in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. We've been spending some time this summer in the Minor Prophets. We made our way through the book of Jonah. We are currently in Habakkuk, and Lord willing, in a couple weeks' time, we will begin a very brief series through Obadiah. So that's just a little bit of a lay of the land. Last week in our first sermon in Habakkuk, we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We're going to pick up there today with chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 20. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up to Habakkuk. Do a little Bible drill and make your way there. I'm going to assume a little bit of interest on your part this morning. You're here, so I trust you want to hear from the Lord. But let me just ask you this question. Do you ever wrestle with how things go in this fallen world? Do you ever struggle with how things unfold? For you personally, for those you know and love... Or even in the world at a larger scale? Do you struggle with that? Does that seem hard to you? Is it hard to determine what is God doing? If you've ever had a thought like that, I assume you're interested in what we're going to consider today from the book of Habakkuk. Because God's people through history have wrestled with those same things as well. And that includes not just the normal average run-of-the-mill people in the pew. That includes his prophets as well because we are all the same. You're making your way to Habakkuk. I want to make a few brief comments again by way of background and even just a a 30,000 foot perspective of the book. We say this often. Let this be another reminder to us. If we do not understand the whole of a book, we will do terrible things with the parts. If we don't understand the whole of the Bible, we will do terrible things with the parts. So 30,000 foot flyovers are helpful for that reason. Habakkuk is a prophet, as we considered last time, in the southern kingdom of Judah. Many in the room know that after King Solomon's reign as a result of the sin of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was split in two: the northern kingdom of Israel, capital in Samaria, the southern kingdom of Judah, capital in Jerusalem. So Habakkuk is prophesying in that southern kingdom of Judah. The spiritual and moral condition in Judah when he's writing is bad. We thought about that last week. Historically we would understand that this book was written sometime between 609 BC when King Josiah's reign ended and the reforms under him and then 586 BC when the Babylonians would conquer Jerusalem. Very likely this book is written during the reign of King Jehoiakim, who was Josiah's son, who was a very wicked king. And as we've thought about so many times, for Israel, for Judah, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. When there's a wicked king, the kingdom suffers, and wickedness is prevalent. So that's kind of the circumstance. As far as an overview of the book, just briefly, for our own perspective this morning, Habakkuk is an unusual book, It's an unusual prophetic book in that Habakkuk, the prophet, never even speaks to a human being. It's completely a dialogue between the prophet and God. In particular, the book documents the prophet's own wrestlings, his own strugglings in his heart with what he sees going on in Judah, and then subsequently with what the Lord says he's going to do about that. Chapters 1 and 2, you have this Q&A session between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk brings his complaints to the Lord and the Lord responds. We thought about the first complaint and the first response last week. We'll look at the second complaint and the second response of God today. And then chapter 3 is a psalm written by the prophet as a result of what the Lord has said. The psalm in chapter 3 catalogs God's faithfulness to his covenant people in the past in the exodus at Mount Sinai in the conquest of Canaan and it includes a confession that Habakkuk for his part will trust in the Lord in spite of what's coming no matter how bad that might be so again we left off last week having considered Habakkuk's first complaint and then the response of the Lord that he is raising up the Chaldeans as a measure of his judgment against Judah for Judah's sin. So having said that, all that by way of introduction. Let's consider our text for today. Listen now as I read God's word beginning in Habakkuk 1:12. This is the word of God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? Who loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake! To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan for us this morning is to consider the text Effectively in two parts. We're going to consider Habakkuk's complaint and then we will consider the Lord's response Now the Lord's response kind of breaks down into two sections. Don't worry about that He says a few things at the outset and then pronounces a series of woes upon the Babylonians on the Chaldeans But after we've considered the text in those two major parts I've got two additional points of meditation for us and then a conclusion. So that's the plan So let's look to the text together just a reminder, briefly, of where we've been, especially if you were not here last Sunday. We talked about this a little bit in the overview. But Habakkuk raises a complaint to God. He asks the Lord, like, hey, the spiritual and moral condition of this people in Judah, this is terrible. How long will all of this injustice and All of this immorality. How long is this going to go on and you're just going to look at it and do nothing? Are you going to act? And the Lord responds. And he says, I'm doing a thing that even if you were told what it is, you wouldn't believe it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And I'm going to use them effectively as an instrument of my judgment against Judah for Judah's sin. So that's last week's text. So, Habakkuk, how does this land on him? Well, he struggles with it, as we're going to see today. While he is upset about the spiritual and moral condition in Judah, the Lord gives an answer that he's kind of like, yeah, I don't know about that. The cure, Lord, seems worse than the disease is, right? Like, I understand why you're judging us. We deserve it. Like, I get it. But what I don't understand is how you could use the Chaldeans as an agent of that judgment. Like, they are way more wicked than we are. The Lord's answer has not been what Habakkuk was looking for. Potentially, he was looking for another period of reform, like it occurred not long prior under King Josiah. Lord, bring reformation. Bring revival. But the Chaldeans, for real? See, he's petitioning the Lord. Put your eyes on verse 12. He begins with true words. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You're holy, and you've always been. And then he says, we shall not die. He's talking about Judah. He's talking about the covenant people of God. He understands clearly something of God's steadfast love for his people. Habakkuk knows at least to some degree, that the Lord will not forsake his covenant commitment to his people. And Habakkuk even says, second part of the verse, Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment. You've established them for reproof. He knows that the Lord is up to something that is not altogether bad in raising up the Chaldeans. You've done this for judgment. You've done this for reproof for us because we deserve that. We need that. So he's saying all of those things. Then verse 13, you begin to see the inner wrestlings. He says, Lord, you're so holy that you can't look at wrong. You're so holy, you can't look at wrong, yet you are looking on and allowing and ordaining that the Chaldeans, wicked as they are, would come and swallow up Judah. They are more wicked than we are. How can their evil go unchecked? How can their evil go unpunished? Right, this again, like we thought about last week, is that justice meter thing that we all have going on, not just with each other, but with the Lord sometimes. Then in verses 14 to 17, what we have is a depiction of the Chaldeans and how they conquer people. They conquer nations. Verse 14. Habakkuk says, you've made people, mankind, like the fish of the sea. What does he mean? He's going to talk about fishermen who just catch fish in their nets and just haul them out of the ocean in mass number. And he's like, that's what the Chaldeans are like. You've made human beings as insignificant as the fish that a fisherman would haul in in a catch. Because the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they go around just conquering people like that. Like fishermen would haul in fish. They conquer people. You have made human beings that insignificant. It's quite an indictment. Do you not care about how wicked these people are and what they've done to other human beings? What's worse, not only is the conquering of peoples and the way that they go about doing it wicked, they worship their nets and they sacrifice to their nets. They worship their own might, right, to use the verse, the words of verse 11 of chapter 1. They worship their own ability to conquer, they trust in their own might. As a result of all of their exploits, they live in luxury because they plunder people. They take what's not theirs. They prey upon others. And then he asks, verse 17, again, using the metaphorical illustration, is he the fisherman? He's just going to keep on doing this mercilessly forever. Are the Chaldeans, are they really just going to keep conquering people, using people, plundering people? Are they just going to keep mercilessly killing nations? Like, Lord, how are you okay with this? How is any of this okay? Like, I understand that Judah, we, deserve judgment, but really, this? That's... What's going on at the heart level? You get it. You've been there. So have I. Verse 1 of chapter 2 is a transition. Habakkuk's going to set up shop and wait for the Lord's answer. Military language is used figuratively, right? He says he's going to set up his watch post. He's going to take a stand there. And he's going to station himself on the tower. He's depicted as a watchman keeping vigil. He's on lookout. For a word from the Lord. Now realize in this whole thing, there's been time transpiring, right? I mean, that's clear in the early verses of chapter 1. Like, how long am I going to cry out to you about this and you're not going to do anything? So it's not like he just started talking to the Lord about it. Time has gone by. And he's like, I'm going to, I've raised my complaint, I'll wait. And depending, don't miss the the end of verse 1. He says, He says, I'm going to look out to see what he'll say and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So, I'm going to listen for what the Lord's going to say and then depending on what he says, I might have something to say back. Right? And then the Lord's going to respond, beginning in verse 2. And his response goes all the way to verse 20. So, let's look at that together. The Lord in these verses is going to demonstrate that he is both just and and the justifier of those who have faith in his promises. He's always been the same. So the Lord speaks. Verse 2. He says to Habakkuk, write the vision. Write down what I'm saying to you. Make it plain so that he may run who reads it. What's in view there is like a courier who would run messages from town to town. Make it so plain that a man could hypothetically run and read it. Make it so plain that passers-by can read it without difficulty. So clearly, this message is to be spread amongst the covenant people. Verse 3. He says, it will take some time for the vision that I'm going to give you to come to pass. It might seem slow, but wait for it. It will happen. Now, we could preach a bunch of sermons on that right there. Just, it will happen, it may seem slow, if it does, wait for it, it will happen, I promise. The length of time it takes for the prophecy to be fulfilled should not be looked at as failure or as deception on God's part. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, right? Right? Judgment on the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, which is what this vision depicts, it would come. Precisely in 539 BC, it would come. Several generations after Habakkuk would have written these words. We talk about this a lot, how there are things that we do in the Christian life. There are promises that we cling to, and we might not see fruit, or we might not see the realization of these things until after we're dead. That is true. And the Lord is faithful. That was the case here. Habakkuk was not alive, most likely, by the time that this vision came to pass. Yet the Lord kept his promise, right? In 539 BC, through a man named Cyrus and the Persians, the Babylonians would meet their fate. In verse 4, the Lord reveals the distinction that He makes between the wicked, which is clearly the Babylonians, the Chaldeans in this case, and then the righteous, which is the remnant of Judah, the elect in this case. The soul of the Chaldeans, His soul, right, is puffed up and not upright. However, the righteous shall live by His faith. We're going to come back to that. Clearly, by faith in what? In the Lord and in His promises. Then in verse 5, the Chaldeans are characterized by debauchery and greed. The Lord knows who they are. He'd already said these things in chapter 1. Even when he initially told Habakkuk, I'm going to use the Chaldeans, he talks about how wicked they are. He doesn't for one second play like these people are decent or upright. He says they're like death. They never have enough. They just keep conquering people. Then beginning in verse 6, the Lord pronounces woe. And when you read that word woe, think judgment and ruin. He pronounces woe upon the Chaldeans. And he does it rhetorically through the lips of those who have been conquered and exploited and killed by the Chaldeans. Right? He says, should not all these, all these nations that you've conquered, should not all these raise up and taunt you and say the following? Remember, the Lord is no fool. He is just and all wise. In verses 6 to 8, we get the first of five woes that he pronounces. He pronounces their woe on the Chaldeans because they've plundered nations and they've heaped up what's not their own. Ruin is coming. Judgment is coming. Because they've plundered many nations, they in turn will be plundered. Not only will they be plundered, they will be conquered. They themselves will be the spoils of war. As they have done to others, it will be done to them. For the blood they've spilled, this will happen. And for the violence that they've done to the earth, this will happen. All of this cries out to be avenged, not unlike the voice of the blood of Abel that cried out to the Lord in Genesis 4. Cries out to me for justice. The second woe is pronounced in verses 9 to 11. Woe to the Chaldeans who have gotten evil gain for themselves. They have tried to fortify and insulate themselves through all of this evil game. To make themselves untouchable through what all they have amassed. I mean, you understand how this works? When people exploit others and they have a ton of resources, you can protect and insulate yourself in this life. So this is what they've tried to do. They have cut off and destroyed many peoples and have therefore brought shame upon themselves and have therefore forfeited their lives. Why? Why? How? Because God is just. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. That's the covenant God made with Noah in Genesis 9. Even the very materials with which they have built their house, the stone and the wood, will cry out and testify against them because of their wickedness. Then in verses 12 to 14, we have the third woe. Woe to the Chaldeans who build a town with blood and a city with iniquity. Right? The Lord will not be mocked. This is how many nations operate in this fallen world. They build themselves through the shedding of blood and through iniquity. And he asks, is it not from the Lord that people toil simply for warmth? That people have to work themselves to death simply to survive? Is that not from God? And that nations weary themselves for nothing. Is that not from God? Yes, it is from the Lord. He has made it so that the efforts of the proud to perpetuate their own glory will come to nothing. You understand that? Those who seek to make a name for themselves through iniquity and oppression and injustice, the Lord says, I've made it so they'll have to toil simply to survive, and I've made it so that they will do all of that and try to preserve their own glory to no avail. And it is in fact, verse 14, the glory of the Lord that the whole earth will acknowledge. It's not the glory of Babylon. It's the glory of the Lord. This is a statement of certainty of what will be the case. The knowledge and worship of the Lord who is glorious will be the final outcome. For now... People suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's all over the place in our day. We see it. For now, the nations rage and plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed. But that won't be the case forever. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Verses 15 to 17, we get the fourth woe. Woe to the Chaldeans who make their neighbors, who make other peoples, other nations, drink the cup of their wrath so that they can humiliate them. They themselves, the Chaldeans, will have their fill of shame instead of glory, the Lord says. They will be drunk with wrath to their own humiliation, not the humiliation of others this time. The wrath that they will drink will be the wrath of the Lord himself, the cup that's in the Lord's right hand of wrath and retribution. It will come around to them. And as a result, shame will come upon them. The Chaldeans, verse 17, will reap the violence that they've done to others and to the creation. It will come upon their own heads. So you see twice in these woes the language of, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And then we have also the specific words in verse 17 about a campaign against Lebanon where many animals were destroyed by the Chaldeans. It's just an interesting thing to see how the Lord has already been very clear about retribution for the taking of human life. But the kind of warfare and the kind of empirical pursuits that just run roughshod over the world that God has made, the Lord is not pleased with that either. Then finally, the fifth woe in verses 18 to 20. Again, through the lips of those who've been conquered, through the lips of those who've been killed, the Lord is going to mock the idolatry of the Babylonians. He's going to mock idolatry in general. He does this elsewhere in the scriptures. I mean, read Isaiah 44 in passages like this. The Lord uses very sarcastic, strong language when he talks about the idols of the nations. Because they're a mockery. He asks, what profit is an idol to its maker? Rhetorically, the answer is, well, none. Zero. It, the idol, the metal image, it's a teacher of lies. This is because the maker of the idol is trusting what he's created with his own hands. How foolish is that? You made the thing that you're trusting in for your circumstances, for your life, for your life after death, all that? How absurd. And what's more, the Lord says these these things can't even speak. Woe to him who says to an idol, awake, or says to an idol, arise. It's like, bro, you're talking to a piece of wood. You're talking to a stone. Can an idol fashioned of wood or stone teach? Can it give instruction? No, not so much, right? They, the idols, they are overlaid with some precious metal. That's about all we can say. But there is no breath, no life in them at all. So what are you doing in worshiping such a thing? But the Lord, verse 20, he's in his holy temple. He lives, he reigns, he speaks. And he does all of that in righteousness and holiness. And so let all the earth keep silence before him, reverence, awe, worship. This will be the end of the wicked. They will stand before God with their mouths stopped, nothing to say. They will be as speechless as the idols they worshiped. The Lord is in his holy temple, his heavenly sanctuary. Let all the earth revere him and stand in awe of him. The final outcome will be the worship of the one true, holy, and living God. Those are strong words. About one of the greatest empires in the history of the earth. This is how the Lord looks at them. This is like what he says elsewhere, right? Isaiah 40, like the nations are like the dust on the scale. So that's our text. The Lord makes it plain that he knows exactly what's going on and that he has purposes that he will accomplish with respect to Babylon. But now let's reflect and meditate more on these truths together. So I have two points of meditation for us. Number one, I want us to meditate. I want us to reflect on the fact that God uses the wicked Chaldeans like he does. He uses the wicked Babylonians like he does to accomplish his purpose. Let's think about that because that's quite a statement to make. I mean, put succinctly, this is what wrecks Habakkuk, right? Like, I get that we deserve judgment, but how could you use those people? They are so wicked. They're so savage in how they deal with other human beings. How could you use them? Let's start with what we know. God governs all things by his wise and holy providence. He is not the author of sin, nor does he do evil. And yet, he works in and through the sinful desires and the sinful actions. Hear that. Desires and actions. Sinful desires, sinful actions of creatures. He works in and through those to accomplish his good and holy purposes. This is the greatness of his wisdom. Now, pick your brain up off the floor because we can't comprehend these things. They are above us. You say, brother, that he's not the author of sin. He never does evil. Yet in his perfect wisdom, he works through the sinful desires and the sinful actions of creatures who do what they want to do to accomplish good and holy ends. That's what you're saying. Yes. When it comes to injustice and evil in this fallen world, the Lord is God. He is transcendent. His ways are higher than our ways, His thoughts, higher than our thoughts. He does not operate, saints, on the same plane that we do. He is the judge of all the earth, He always does what's right. He's told us about His character. That he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger. That he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. That he shows steadfast love to thousands of generations. That he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And that he will by no means clear the guilty. He said that vengeance belongs to him and that he will repay. He is good. He is righteous. The Lord is upright. How often do you read that in the Psalms? And he is so upright that James 1.13, he cannot even be tempted by evil. And so, it is unthinkable that any purpose of his will would ever end in evil. The Lord decrees and permits evil in a way that simultaneously accomplishes his just and gracious purpose in Jesus Christ now that hidden like sovereign purpose in terms of the details of it is accomplished through a myriad of means we observe things and we don't understand we wonder how it's possible at all that God is at work in so much of what we see But beloved, the word of the scriptures is that God is upright. He's faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will do everything he said he'll do. And we can trust him. Now, if you feel a struggle to process that, we're going to do a case study, an example. It's the greatest example. It's the case study of case studies. To try to wrap our minds and hearts around this to the extent that we can say, okay, I might not see all of the inner workings. I cannot comprehend the mind of God in this way, but I can trust what he said. Consider the crucifixion of God the Son. We're going to pull this together. Jesus Christ crucified. Acts 2 and verse 22. Peter is preaching his well-known sermon at Pentecost. And he says these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you have it all right there, even in one verse. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge. It's not just that you knew, you planned it. And this was done by Israelites. You killed him, says Peter. And the hands of lawless men did this. Both are true. God planned it. God ordained it. Wicked men did it. Acts 3, 17 and 18. Peter is speaking in Solomon's portico, again, to a Jewish audience. He says this, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. You acted foolishly. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Basically, modern speak, vernacular, y'all acted a fool, and God was doing his thing. Both are true. Now, can we fully explain or fully understand how all of that works in intricate detail? No. But that these things are simultaneously true is incontrovertibly clear in the scripture. Acts 4 24 to 28. Peter and John have been arrested, they're now released from custody. And the disciples, upon seeing it, are going to say some things. They're going to say some things to the Lord. And when they heard it, that Peter and John had been released, they lifted their voices together to God and said, so this is the early Christians. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, So they're looking back into the Psalms and they're seeing how God has fulfilled and accomplished everything that he said he would do and how against the anointed one, Jesus Christ, there were gathered Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews. They acted in wickedness and did exactly what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. So, The Lord uses sinful desires. He uses sinful actions of creatures who did what they wanted to do to accomplish the greatest evil the world has ever seen. The murder of God the Son. And he did all of that in order to accomplish the greatest good the world will ever know. And we think in our arrogance, that we can understand exactly what God is doing all the time. Please. I'm doing a thing that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. We raise complaints. I mean, we fall off of one side of the horse or the other when it comes to this stuff. Let's just be real. We either act like toddlers and pitch a fit and raise complaints and accuse God of all kinds of things, or we just button it all up super clean, super nice, as though this all fits into our nice little categories and we fully understand the workings of God's providence and will, and it's just open and shut. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. That means inscrut- you cannot know them, you cannot scrutinize them. After Paul in the book of Romans has defended the legitimacy of God's word and God's promises, that's Romans 9. And he's written of God's eternal purposes of election in saving his people that has nothing to do with them, Romans 9. And written of God's power and judgment, and written of Israel and the Gentiles, and God's working in and through all of that, Romans 10 and 11. What's his conclusion? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Nobody. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's the right response. So that's meditation one. On God using the wicked Chaldeans here. Second meditation, second reflection. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This is chapter 2 and verse 4. This verse is cited three times explicitly in the New Testament, twice by Paul, once by the writer of the Hebrews. First, look at it. Put your eyes on chapter 2 and verse 4. Behold, his soul, and again in the context it's very clear, he's talking about the Chaldeans. His soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Consider what the verse says about the wicked. The wicked are those whose souls are puffed up. There's pride. There's conceit. There's trust in themselves, worshiping their own might. And the conclusion of that is that their souls are not upright. Your soul is not upright. That's directly connected to it being puffed up. How many times does this come up in the scripture where the word of God to people in terms of what will ruin you, what will damn you, is this. You trust yourself. You look to your righteousness. You're proud. You don't see your need. You don't see the depth of your corruption. You trust in your own power. But then there are the righteous. Don't miss that. There are those who are righteous before the Lord. It is possible for God to look and say righteous. But how? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There is no one who does good and does not sin. No one. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not one? No, not one. If we've broken the law in one part, we're guilty of breaking it all. James 2, 10 and 11. Unless we lower the standard of the law, there's the teaching of Christ in the greatest sermon ever preached. When he starts off by saying, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. But then he says that not any of this needs to be lowered or lessened. Not a jot, not an iota of the law will pass away until everything's fulfilled. So whoever lowers these things will be least. And then he says, you've got to have a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he goes on to talk about the Ten Commandments, at least two of them. And he says, you've heard it said, you shouldn't murder. But I'm telling you, if you have anger toward another human being, you're toast. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you look at another person lustfully, you're toast. No. No fallen human being can attain to righteousness. No one is capable of perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to God's law, which is what God in his law requires. So then how do we get righteousness? Read your scriptures this way. This verse, Habakkuk 2.4, answers that question. And the apostles understood it to answer that question. Understand Habakkuk 2.4 in its context and understand how Paul and the writer of the Hebrews understood it. That's what Christians do. The answer is that righteousness is God's gift to human beings in Jesus Christ. We receive it by faith. The righteous are those who live by faith. By faith in the Lord and by faith in his promises. Consider the context of Habakkuk 2. The Lord has said, I'm going to judge the Chaldeans, but it's not going to happen for a while. I'm going to do this. I know the truth about them. I see and know all things. I'm going to handle it, but it's going to take a while. His word to his people is that in the meantime, they are to live by faith. In what? In him, his character, and in the promise that he's made. He said he'll do it, he'll do it. That's faith. The righteous live by faith. It rings of Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Just as Abraham believed and had to wait for the Lord to fulfill his promises, just as as Abraham rejoiced to see the day of the Christ, and he saw it by faith and was glad, so too the righteous live by faith. This has always been how the righteous live. Faith in God's promises, realized in Messiah, is how people have always been counted righteous before God, always. This is why Paul cites Habakkuk 2 4 like he does. He cites it in Romans 1. We read it earlier. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now the words rendered from faith for faith, if you're looking at the ESV, literally read from faith unto faith. In other words, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that begins and ends in faith. Galatians 3. Paul cites this verse again. Here, he is talking about how no one will be saved by what they do. No one will be saved by the law, by law-keeping. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse... For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We need to hear the gospel, the good news every week because we forget it every week. The righteous are not those who trust in themselves. The righteous are not those who try to please God through their own efforts. The righteous are not those who strive to attain heaven through good works and obedience to the law. The righteous are those who have actually stopped trying to please God on their own and have turned to Jesus Christ in faith. To receive, not achieve, but to receive righteousness in him. Righteousness, by the way, that God gives freely. The foundation of the Christian life is not what we have done for God. But it's what he in Christ has done for us. The lifeblood of the Christian life is not what we do for Jesus it's what Jesus has done for us the Christian life is not one of achieving on our own it is a life of receiving everything that we need for eternal life and godliness from Jesus Christ what is saving faith how does our confession answer that question Saving faith focuses directly on Christ. This is 14.2 from the Confession. I cite that so that you don't assume that this is just my idea. Focuses directly on Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting in him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Unpack some of that. What is saving faith? I accept, I receive, I rest. Is there anything in that equation that you're doing, that you're accomplishing? No. You're passive. You receive it. You rest. You trust. In Christ alone. For what? Justification, absolutely. The declaration of righteousness. But also for sanctification that you will be conformed unto the image of Christ because his spirit is in you and you've been united to him and he will see it through. For eternal life, meaning glorification and everything that you will ever need to stand before Christ at the end of history, not in fear, but knowing that you have been loved and accepted in the beloved. By virtue of the covenant of grace, not works. It's not contingent upon what we do. It is the gift of God on account of Christ alone. All of this, right? We we receive these things. Even though we've broken all of the commands, we've never kept one. And even though we still sin. We're counted with the righteousness and the holiness and the satisfaction that Christ made for sins. We're counted with all of that by faith it is as though we have never sinned or been sinners and it is as though we've been as obedient as Christ was obedient for us this is the good news Christ for us here's a striking thought habakkuk 220 in the aftermath of the lord pronouncing judgment upon a great empire in the aftermath of the lord mocking idols He says, the Lord's in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Yet have you ever thought about that in Christ, on account of him, we have been granted access to approach the throne of grace with boldness and cry out, Father. The one who sits in his holy temple and says, let the earth keeps silence before me says child cast your burdens and your anxieties upon me because I care for you we are those who have been crucified with Christ which means that his death under the law counts as our death under the law so we're free It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the second meditation. Let's conclude our time. Put your eyes on Habakkuk 2 and verse 3. This will be brief. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, waiting in the midst of suffering and difficulty and injustice, understatement, not easy for us. We don't do well. And here's the thing. We're not the first generation to not do well with that. It's never been easy for God's people. This was happening in the early church. Happened in the Old Testament too. But in the early church, 2 Peter 3, think about that. You could turn there and read it later. Peter writes that scoffers will come in the last days, which we're in. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Doesn't seem like anything unique is happening. When's he coming? Peter tells his readers, beloved, the day of the Lord will come. And he goes on, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Beloved, the Lord is not slow. He's accomplishing his purposes to save his people. That's what Peter said. That's what we say. The day of the Lord will come. And that cup that's in the Lord's right hand, the cup of wrath, the cup of retribution, the wicked, on that day, will drain that whole thing. And for those of us in Christ, on that day, we will have peace because Christ has drained it to the dregs for us. We can trust that the day of the Lord will come, a day that in Christ we need not fear. As Peter writes, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Yes, we are. The other place that Hebrews, or excuse me, that Habakkuk is cited, verse, two, or verse 4 of chapter 2, is in Hebrews 10. It reads this way. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, And will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Saints, we press on. We trust the Lord, we trust his promises, we trust his Christ. We are those who walk by faith and not by sight. God is the one who has given us faith. And Christ, for his part, doesn't break bruised reeds, nor does he put out smoldering wicks. But he will fan, even if your faith is just but a flicker, Christ will fan that until he has brought judgment to victory. That's our hope. Let's pray.